Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to explore Indian thought, the nature of the thought of the Indian subcontinent. With me is Professor Kiran Kumar Salagame, who is the retired professor of psychology at the University of Mysore, former chair of the psychology department there. He is the vice president of the International Transpersonal Association, and he is author of The Psychology of Meditation, A Contextual Approach. Welcome, Kieran. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. And when we think of Indian thought, it's such a vast topic. It's amazing that uh, one could discuss it at all. But I think it's important uh, for our viewers and uh, for ourselves to have an overview of, of this vast, vast ancient arena of uh, consciousness. Uh, and after all, I, I guess we wouldn't be discussing the topic of Indian thought at all if, if it wasn't suspected, I think, by most people that there's something very unique about it. Yes, it is unique. Uh, when we speak of Indian thought, we have to primarily consider three indigenous Indian traditions, you know, uh, Vedic tradition which later is known as more as Hindu tradition. Then we have the Jaina tradition, then the Buddhist tradition. So all these three traditions date back to uh, several centuries and modern historians, archaeologists, Indologists earlier traced it to Indus Valley civilization. Uh, roughly about 3,500 years. Now, uh, they are pushing the date back as they get new evidences. Mm. So, currently many say it's about 6,000 BCE, okay. And some scholar even puts it at 10,000 BCE. Uh, but the Buddhist tradition has a definite date, somewhere between 400 and 500 BCE. So, the Vedic and the Jaina tradition goes back to that. One of the interesting things about the Indus Valley civilization, as I understand it, is it's very ancient. It's probably as old as, as any other known civilization on, on Earth, as old as the uh, Sumerian or the Chinese or the Egyptian. But uh, we don't understand, if, I, if I'm correct, their language. We don't have... Uh, th there are some written inscriptions, but I guess they've never really been translated. It has not been deciphered yet. People are uh, still, archaeologists are trying to decipher exactly the, you know, uh, the pictographs where they had some scripts, uh, those earthen parts and where they are trying to still put together uh, many of those artifacts and they are still trying to understand what exactly they meant. That is not understood, uh, but what we know is uh, 
Vedic Sanskrit is earlier to what today we call classical Sanskrit. So Vedic Sanskrit can be taken as the beginning of the Indian literature. Mm -hmm. So uh, because we have a convention like everything, all the ideas are traced back to Vedas. Uh, and Vedas, uh, that in our country, we believe that the, whatever that has come is not human creation. In Sanskrit, it is said, Vedas are a Purusheya. That means, Purusha means human, A means negating it. It is of a non-human origin. Uh, the other way of saying is, it is of divine origin. Uh, what some of the people interpreted, what it means is, whatever Vedic hymns are there, they are some kind of a cosmic sound patterns, which some of the rishis received them. You know, they, they cognized them. Okay. So, that is how Vedic tradition has started. And Jaina tradition was contemporary. The Jaina tradition is not in Sanskrit. Is that right? It's a different yes, language. It is, it's mostly in Pali, Prakrit, and other languages, which Magadhi, Ardha Magadhi, these were the local dialects were of different regions in northern India. Mm. And most of them emerged from that dialect, not primarily from Vedic uh, Sanskrit. But later on, there are some Sanskrit works uh, authored by Jain saints and Buddhist saints also, Buddhist monks also. And the Buddhist literature is in Pali. Pali. Yes, it is in Pali. But there were some Sanskrit scholars even among them. I mean, some people suggest that Buddhism was a reaction to the Vedic tradition. Yes, it was a reaction in the sense that uh, Gautama the prince, you know, who later after his enlightenment is known as Buddha. Actually, the word Buddha is derived from Bhoda. Bhoda means awareness. So, one who got that highest awareness. So, he is Buddha. So, you see that once he got enlightened, by the time he got enlightened, he had already undergone all the kinds of practices that were prevalent both in the Vedic tradition and in the Jaina tradition. Mm -hmm. He was familiar with all that literature, all those practices. But, and he saw that uh, they are some kind of extremes, okay? Uh, Jainism going to the extreme of asceticism, negating the world completely, negating the material life. The Vedic tradition in the name of yagna, you know, sacrificial rituals, uh, you know, uh, going to the animal sacrifice and all. Uh, that was another extreme. So, Buddhist path is called middle path because he didn't want those excesses. He thought it is not necessary for that kind of enlightenment. And uh, so, therefore, uh, he was, you know, against both the excesses. 
by and he wanted people to be more humanistic mm -hmm. more loving more compassionate and live more as evolved human beings without getting into the you know going after uh, psychic powers or uh, siddhis or uh, going after uh, achieving some uh, other world uh, you know all that mm -hmm. so this was his path now uh, of course in ancient times there were many different migrations that passed through the Indian subcontinent. Yes, yes. So, so you had a, a great diversity of cultural influences. Uh, we talk about the Aryan invasion. We talk about the, the Dravidian people who were there prior to the Aryans and, and many other uh, tribal groups and, and cultures in India. Yeah, we, we do have many indigenous tribal groups in India. We also had many foreign invasions. There were earlier foreign travelers before the invasion took place. But, and there were definitely migrants also. But this Aryan Dravidian invasion theory, which mm -hmm. is called, it has become very controversial. Uh, and there are people who say Aryans are native to India, and there are historians who say they emigrated from Persia, from Iran towards India. So there are differences of opinion and in, it is one of the conflicting theories now. And uh, I'm not a historian and uh, I cannot uh, definitely take a position on that. Mm -hmm. I would suggest some historians uh, or future researchers will decide that matter. Well, one thing that seems kind of evident to me is is that in the Vedic pantheon of gods, yes. it's quite similar to the Greek pantheon in, in many ways, which suggests that, you know, the Aryan people spread uh, all the way f between India and Greece, at least. And, and regarding the commonalities in the language, in the linguistic structure, yeah. there are uh, certain ling linguists who have spoken about, uh, uh, you know, Europe-Indian, uh, that language family. Yes. So, all that is there. I mean, we find many Sanskrit words uh, yeah, exactly. are recognizable in English. Exactly. Today in Hinduism, we hear about the three great gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Yes. Uh, but in the ancient Vedic tradition, uh, other gods are more dominant. Yes, so correct. How, how did that occur? How did Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva come to be recognized as the primary deities of the Hindu tradition? It is, again, a story where uh, centuries have passed, and uh, it is uh, from what I have read, uh, you see that there is a clear difference between the Vedic sacrificial religion and the religion of the common folk where they did some kind of a prayer and worship. Okay, this has been pointed out by Indologists, uh, you know, who have studied these two right. clearly. So, the Vedic gods are considered as powers of nature. 
and those powers of nature are personified. And the Vedic sacrifice centered around fulfilling the desires of life. It may be uh, for a progeny, it may be for kingdom, it may be for wealth, or it may be for the afterlife. So, the sacrificial fire ritual, which is performed by Vedic tradition, considers fire god, Agni, as the mediator between the humans and the other powers, you know, Varuna, Mitra, Marutas, and those Vedic deities who would bestow the boon which for which you are giving them some kind of an alm through fire. So this is the basic idea. But if you come to the tribal folks, if you go to other common people, this kind of a Vedic sacrificial religion did not exist. It was more of supplicating. It was more of praying and offering flowers or fruits or something like that, or even uh, some animals directly. And uh, when we see this, we find that, you know, in many parts of India, at least in southern parts of India, I am aware that the tribal kind of religious worship predominated for a long time. The Vedic tradition and Vedic sacrificial religion, Vedic mantras, they all came to southern part of India when the Jainism and Buddhism became dominant uh, in northern part of India. Mm -hmm. And how they, when they came to southern India, uh, this Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva and Vishnu's cults were already there. And the Shakti cult was also there. Mm -hmm. And these Vedic Sanskrit, uh, you know, rishis or scholars, they embraced either the Vishnu cult or the Shiva cult or the Shakti cult or some accepted both Shiva and Vishnu. And that resulted in different kinds of worship performance. Some of the Vedic mantras are, you know, uh, you superimposed upon the uh, the old kinds of practices of worship and these things. Mm -hmm. I was always intrigued when I attended some uh, function, rituals and all, that you, on the one hand you offer these things and also invoke some mantras from Taitri Upanishad or Purusha Sukta from some other Rigvedic tradition. I was always puzzled how they fit together because they are different, representing different things. So I think this Shiva, Vishnu, Shakti cult predominated more in the southern part. Yeah. But I, I am not 100% sure about it because it is there even in the northern India. For example, Kashmiri Shaivism. Mm. So I think it all spread, but definitely you can see two things. One, worshipping God directly. Another, you do something and seek boon through sacrifice rituals. So these two are distinct ways of understanding the spirituality and Indian thought over hundreds of centuries have combined these two distinct ways of looking at reality. If I was to try to get to the essence of yes. Indian thought, it seems to be, yes. if I had to put it in one word, I would say fusion. Huh. 
Because, yes. Be, because you've got the southern India, you've got the northern Indian traditions, they fuse together. You have the sacrificial traditions and the other uh, more direct worship traditions yes. fusing together. Exactly. You have the ascetic traditions and the uh, traditions of uh, expression uh, in the world fusing yes. together. Yeah, that's exactly correct because another person, another Indologist, Dandekar, he speaks of two ways of life and two ways of thinking in the Indian tradition. He calls one as Rishi tradition, another as Muni Yeti tradition. In the Rishi tradition, Rishis were householders. They had children. Mm -hmm. They were married. They enjoyed the material life to the brim. And there were also the Rishis who also uh, you know, dwelt upon transcendence. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Muni and the Yeti tradition, they were ascetics. They were the people who withdraw from, uh, you know, all the material way of living. Mm -hmm. So, the article I am referring to by Dandekar speaks of uh, the Jaina influence on the Muni-Yati tradition, so to say, mm -hmm. and the Vedic uh, influence of the Rishi tradition. And uh, these Rishi and Muni-Yati traditions, whatever good things are there, or whatever superstitious things that might have accrued over centuries, they have got fused together. They have kind of, uh, have become a compound in the chemical sense of the term. Mm -hmm. So, what you see today as Hinduism in a broad way has elements from the Vedic tradition, some good things from the Jaina tradition, certain things from the Buddhist tradition also. See, take for example Buddha. Both Buddha and Jaina traditions are known to be atheistic. Mm. But you see what has happened in the Buddhist tradition. Buddha himself is made a god and he is worshipped with all the rituals. So you go to any Buddhist monastery or Buddhist temple, you have a whole pantheon of, uh, you know, his uh, Buddhist, uh, for Buddha there were so many powers and yes. all that. Ma many deities. Many deities, but exactly. But they're not thought of in the same sense uh, as, uh, as Westerners uh, think of God, God, for yeah. example. Yeah, but they are, in a way, uh, they are parallel to what the Vedic uh, deities are, powers, powers, so to say. Yeah. I saw it in Shanghai. In, you know, I visited Shanghai. So, in the Buddhist temples, I saw all of them represented, you know, mm -hmm. all those powers. So, now Buddha himself did not speak of any religion in that sense, any rituals. He, he, he was always trying to speak about uh, living, you know, with compassion and uh, trying to go beyond. But later on, the, when the Buddhist tradition developed, after 200 years, when they, you know, brought together all the teachings and they systematized it and they classified it, slowly, you know, different denominations developed. Yeah. I understand that, you know, whether it is Buddhist, whether it is Jaina, or whether it is Vedic. There are uh, idealists, there are realists, and there are, you know, pluralists, all kind of uh, ontological positions they have taken. 
and you find similarities in schools. So, uh, I think when you take Indian thought, you have to see finally, conceptually, what ontologies and what epistemologies all these schools have accepted. Because one of the uh, professor of philosophy, uh, Indian philosophy, by name Hiriyanna, he is internationally known as a philosopher of standing. He says Indian tradition accepted uh, uh, what, what we call pramana. Epistemology is called pramana shastra. That means valid means of obtaining knowledge. So perception inference. Okay. Charvakas accepted only perception and inference. Now, Charvaka we should define. Yeah, Charvaka are the materialist schools who are equivalent of present-day positivists, who orthodox uh, thinking, who believe only in material reality. And they're very ancient. Yeah, and Charvakas was a group of thinkers who were very ancient, who lived contemporaneously in the Vedic period itself. But their view did not, their world view did not dominate the Indian thinking. It was never dominant, but it was always present. It was always present. Mm -hmm. And all the, the people who held to the spiritual worldview referred to them as the opponents and uh, give some statement about what they believed, what their teaching was. Mm -hmm. That's how we still consider Charvak as a darshana. You know, in Indian tradition, the Indian thought traditions are called darshanas. Darshana means vision and perspective. You get some idea of, it's a worldview. In the present day language, it's a worldview. So, all the Indian tradition, be it Vedic, Jaina or Buddhist, have a spiritual worldview. But it is not necessary that they believed in creationism in a God creating. Mm. Jaina and Buddhists do not speak of any God, whereas the Vedic tradition speaks of the God, deities. Yes. So, again you go to the Shiva, Vishnu and all. You have both concrete representation of Shiva and Vishnu or Brahma, and you also have an abstract transcendental understanding as principles. So, it is a very complicated system. Another duality that you have written about that really struck me, mm -hmm. uh, because India has such a profound philosophical tradition, but there's also a folk tradition. And yeah. you point out that really uh, amongst the people of India, the, the philosophical ideals seem to be Im embedded in, in, the, in the folk, but most people practice the folk religion, not the philosophical. Exactly, because you see that in India, you know, today uh, in the psychological literature, uh, particularly in the Western literature, there is a clear distinction made between religion and spirituality. When you say religion, uh, the definition is it is an organized faith with certain customs, rituals, practices, which you follow and you adhere to a particular uh, ideology or faith or something like that. 
Whereas spirituality is defined as an attempt to connect with something broader, something bigger, something cosmic, trying to realize uh, the ultimate na nature of self like that. So if you go back and study the Indian traditions, you find that you have both. The, you have the spirituality in India, you have the religion in India, but they have been together. That is the problem. And if you take the spiritual literature, particularly the Upanishads, it is very clear as far as what is the distinction between the religiosity and the spirituality. Okay, but for the common people, the elements of spirituality is integrated in a way brought down. So you ask any Indian, we have certain common beliefs, understanding regarding love, karma, rebirth, the possibility of Atman as the real, you know, identity, a belief in a soul which takes different births. All these are there. They are mentioned in the Upanishads also. They are in the way the, you know, it, uh, that idea is there. But there is a religious part to it of supplicating to God. So we have a concrete level and an abstract level. And it is not just my observation. Uh, it is an observation by a philosopher uh, who wrote outlines of uh, Indian philosophy some, somewhere in 1902 or 8. Uh, P.T. Srinivas Iyengar whom I have quoted, I think, in that uh, article you are referring to, mm -hmm. he says, though Indians have gone abroad and have tried to project Vedanta as the Indian truth religion or religion of India, when it comes to actual practice of common people, it is the religious faith and ritual that predominates. This is not my statement. Yeah. It is a statement of a person made some hundred years ago. Uh, so, the religion is usually called Agama. Agama means that which has come from immemorial. It's not subjected to scrutiny, inquiry. It is more an article of faith. Mm -hmm. Whereas, Shastra, which is called in Upanishads and all, they are Vedas and Shastra is subject to inquiry. So, we have more of faith, less of this. Because millions of people will show up at the various festivals. Yes. But only a fraction of those people will actually engage in the intellectual study of the Upanishads and the Vedas. Yes. That is because, uh, primarily because of two, three reasons, as I guess, it's only a guess. One is, uh, you see, the understanding of Upanishads necessarily requires an ability to uh, go beyond uh, your cognitive ability. If you take the Piagetian stages, for example, mm -hmm. Much of the adult thinking is supposed to top at formal operational thought, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
and the scientific attitude is associated with an as if proposition mm -hmm. and uh, you know uh, so we are speaking of those four stages of intellectual cognitive development but there are two stages of development of cognition beyond the Piaget in thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, one is called dualistic thought, another is called unitary thought. And transcendence is beyond the unitary thought. Okay, so at the thinking level itself, there are higher stages. And if you look at it from that point of view, the Vedanta is supposed to be emerging from a unitary level of thought and Sankhya is supposed to have been developed from the dualistic level of thought and the other thinking, you know, the reductionist paradigm has come from the formal operational level. I read it all in a book, probably you are also aware of it, it came somewhere around 1983 or 5 Psychotherapy East and West, a unifying paradigm by Swami Ajaya, who, wa who was an American clinical psychologist and became a disciple of Swami Rama. If you look at the Indian tradition, Indian tradition has come from dualistic and unitary thought, mostly, mostly. And therefore, for a common man to get to that may be a difficult proposition. But if somebody has an inclination towards these things, that means their cognitive development must have gone beyond that. So, therefore, in India, we have a large mass of people who have a particular way of thinking or approach to reality. Uh, and maybe these uh, people were exceptional people who had developed that, who had those experiences. Well, I think partially what you're suggesting is, is that the, the common person in India who may never have studied Vedanta or, or the, even the detailed teachings of Buddha and, and, and the great philosophies of Shankara and, and, and so on, will have an appreciation of mantra an appreciation yes. of, of, of just the power of syllables, of sound itself. Yes, that is one, one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. You see, you have been given a package. You follow this, okay, to make your life convenient. But in the Indian tradition, you are also told very clearly, this package is not the ultimate. Okay, mm -hmm. so when when some type of worship is told, some mantra is given, that is for daily living, you have to follow this. Yeah. But that is only a path to connect with something higher. Mm -hmm. But that may not be appreciated by everybody, or may not be possible for everybody to go beyond certain limits. Here is the psychology of individual differences. Okay, I don't mean to say somebody is low or somebody is high. I'm not making any judgment about it. What I'm saying is, it is a question of different abilities because it is 
it is not necessary that to experience transcendence one should have had any formal training in any religious doctrine or anything the person need not have been born even in a higher caste or anything i take two contemporary examples see one was ramana maharshi i was referring to ramana maharshi was supposed to have been born in a brahmin caste which is known as the upper caste who are the repository of all the vedic upanishadic lore he himself had not studied anything of that except whatever religious practices he was exposed to but one day he had what he later called a death experience suddenly he some he says some fear developed in me that i'm going to die and he says he enacted how a death person will be you know he had seen some corpse and all and he says within flash of seconds i got an insight that i and the body are different and that was it it was first and last experience and after that he lost interest in his ninth grade uh, studies and then he leaves his place his uncle place where he was he goes away to thiruvannamalai and he lived there for more than 50 years and for the 2 3 years immediately he always used to be in another state so later many in people interpreted he went to higher state came back and all but he clarifies no that one experience was the ultimate experience i never there was no question of going up and coming down it was stable but i was drawn inward okay so that and only gradually came back to social external reality you see there was no formal schooling or training as far as these matters are concerned ramakrishna paramahamsa is another okay now you take mata amrutanam andamai hugging saint who is known as ama okay you take her where was she she was born in a fisherman's family okay fisherman's family they they made their living by fishing she had no higher caste background you know nobody uh, studied in upanishad or vedas in her family she got some and she hardly studied up to fourth or fifth standard but she is a world spiritual leader today everybody flocks after her she and she had that experience so what does it show it shows that this experience has nothing to do with your religion your caste your formal education your upbringing or anything it is independent of all that and to whom it happens we don't know so you take the rishis even in the rishis there were people of all categories all varnas as they call all varnas varna earlier what you call caste system today the caste system that is different yeah the the word varna was used more as a classificatory scheme mm-hmm. and one of the verse in the bhagavad gita says where krishna says 
I have created the four varnas based on guna and karma. Guna means what quality, what principle, you know, uh, predominates and what action you do. Based on that, I made a classification. When he says, I made, he doesn't mean Krishna, the son of uh, Osudeva and Devaki. It is not that. He is speaking as Vishnu, the divine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the point is, experience is first. It can happen to anybody on earth. Later, the experiences have accumulated and have created a body of knowledge, which is spiritual. Well, one of the unique features, it would seem to me, of Indian culture is the ability to, to recognize that, that, I'll call it charisma, huh. in people like Anandamaya Ma, the daughter of a fisherman who's become yeah. a, a world spiritual figure. Yes, yes, that is the point. So now, that kind of level of consciousness, shall we say, shall we say level of awareness, we had more of that in the ancient time. If you take Aurobindo's book on the Vedas, mm -hmm. what Aurobindo has written is, there was an age of intuition in the Vedic period. By the time Upanishads came, it was already an age of intellect. And then the schools, what we call philosophical systems, which developed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, around uh, 500 BC or later on, all those, uh, Sankhya, Yoga, Vaisheshika, all those schools, what we call today Indian philosophical systems. By the time, even, you know, it was more of sensory experience and reasoning and logic. Uh, and he says, the very structure of the psyche of people itself went on shifting from one age to another. And uh, you mentioned that you read the chapter on the development of you know, Indian thought tradition. I have also mentioned about the sociologist Pitrim Sorokin. Yes, one of he, my intellectual heroes, incidentally. Yes, so you know well then that in his books on sociocultural dynamics, he has very clearly written that, you know, all the societies have passed through certain eras and then he speaks of the sensate era. Yeah. Uh, based, he speaks of three outlook or mentation, yeah. mental outlooks like sensate, idealistic and ideation. Yes. And he has given the description. Yes. And he says, Western culture is in the last phases of the sensate era. Yes, the decaying <laughs> portion no. of the sensate era. Yes. <laughs> so, the sensate era is the one where the empirical, uh, you know, reason and sensory apparatus becomes predominant. Yes. And the ideational is where you speak of the spiritual and all that belief and all that. Yes. Idealistic is some kind of an integration of that. Yes. So if you keep a Sorokinian framework and look at the Indian thought, for example, I see that, you know, we had the sensate 
mentality, the ideational mentality and the idealistic mentality simultaneously existing at different stages. That is why you see Charvaka was allowed. They are completely sensate. Okay. The Vedic uh, rishis were there who were more ideal, ideational. And the Upanishadic rishis, I would say more idealistic who sort of combine the sensate and the thing. Mm -hmm. And you look at the Indian uh, diaspora within India. You look at how we have the tribals in the Andaman Nicobar Islands who remain as aboriginals whom anthropologists describe uh, lived as primitive people. And, and they are protected today. I yeah, they are protected. Mm -hmm. But they still live that way only. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we also have the Vedantic uh, rishis who have realized the Vedantic truth. So you have people with different kinds of mentality, with different levels of awareness. And there is a whole spectrum in India today. If you just go around India, you will find uh, People who reject all these things, the people who accept all these things, uh, you can't pin down. So, and why I, I think it is because uh, in the Rig Veda, there is a famous statement again, I'm attracted. Ano Bhadra, uh, uh, it says, let the noble thoughts come from all the sides. It comes from all the sides. Let the noble thoughts come from all the sides. Mm -hmm. This is a Rigvedic dictum. So we, our rishis invited the noble thoughts from all the sides. They allowed all streams of thinking to flourish. Mm -hmm. So we have all the shades. Well, and you yourself embody uh, another unique perspective, someone with Western education, uh, a psychologist uh, trained in the empirical methods of science uh, endeavoring to integrate that with these ancient traditions. Yeah, I, I initially I had conflicts, as I told you in the morning, uh, when I was brought to the notice that the Upanishads have a different dimension mm -hmm. and the Indian psychology uh, emerges from that, I did have a conflict for a couple of years, how to reconcile the two. But that reconciliation process happened, you know, through reflection, through meditation, some of my own little experiences. And slowly I realized that they need not be contradictory. They are speaking uh, different facets so that it can be, both can coexist. So I have nothing against Western psychology. I respect Skinner as much as I respect Shankara. Skinner has some valid points of operant conditioning, reinforcement, which is important. Okay. Shankara has spoken about Advaita Vedanta, which is important. But each has its place. Each is relevant at certain level. And with whom, to whom that is required is important. Mm -hmm. Because I, if I have to tell you, I, I gave behavior therapy 
you know, systematic desensitization to a monk who was wearing the ochre robe. He came with the phobia of snakes. Oh. As a clinical intern, I was working in the behavior therapy unit and he was referred to me. I gave him systematic desensitization. He used to wear, you know, the bandage, the orthopedic uh, clinicians give you to wear the bandage uh, around your thigh. Mm -hmm. You know, he was wearing that kind of thing. I asked him why. I, he said, I'm afraid of snakes. So I gave him relaxation, Jacobson relaxation. I took him through systematic desensitization procedure. I removed his fear. So he removed that band from his hand. Uh -huh. huh, that was as a clear. So, so <laughs> <laughs> you see. So now. Skinner was very useful. In, well, yes, in, uh -huh. yes. And Jacobson. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Uh -huh. he is, operant conditioning is a principle. Well, that's part of the beauty, I think, of Indian culture in general. You can, nothing is foreign. Yeah. Do you, everything can be integrated. It I know integrated. many Hindus, uh, people consider Jesus Christ as part of their religion. Exactly. Jesus is a avatar because we have the concept of avatar. The divine can incarnate anywhere on earth as a human being. Buddha is an avatar, Jesus is yeah. also an avatar. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? What has he taught? He has taught love, peace, humanity. Okay, you find love, peace, and humanity in the Vedic tradition too. So how how different it is in the sense that mm -hmm. why should I or disrespect him? Mm -hmm. So there, there is this all-embracing sense, yes. which is part of Hindu culture. I think it's very admirable. Let the noble thoughts come from all the sides. Mm -hmm. This is a Rig Vedic statement. You know, it is a statement, it's a part of a hymn in the Rig Veda. Ano badra kratavo yentu vishwataha. Let the noble thoughts come from all sides. Kiran. Kumar Salagami, thank you once again so much for this wonderful exposition of, of Indian thought. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased that I am able to share some of my thinking with you. Thinking aloud. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, thinking aloud. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.